0: Welcome back to the Marion Flaxman Network podcast. On today's episode, my conversation with Savante Myrick. In 2011, Savante was elected mayor of Ithaca, New York, making him the youngest ever mayor elected in the state at that time. He served for more than 10 years before stepping down to assume his current role as president for People for the American Way, an organization founded by Norman Lear. In this conversation, we talk about so many things, including the many overlaps between public policy and public health, his childhood and what led him to get involved in public service, what he thinks millennials need to do leading up to the next election, and the many metaphors that exist between microbiology and society. Please enjoy my conversation with Savante Myrick. Savante, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, and it's great to see you.
0: Oh, my gosh. It's great to see you, too. It's been forever, despite the fact that you are now haunting D.C. and I am haunting Ithaca. So we're kind of doing a a back and forth haunting of each other's home turf.
1: No. And haunting is a good way to put it, because uh, um, every time you do come to Ithaca, it feels a little spookier. (laughs)
0: I'm glad that you're getting that because I bring the spooky vibes with me on purpose. And I'm glad that despite never knowing if I'm there or not.
1: Yeah. It's like everybody in town, just a chill goes down our spine. We don't (laughs) even know. Oh, it must be. She must be. She crossed the county line.
0: They're like, is that kombucha? Do you are you getting that? <laughs> they can just sense there's like a sourdough starter nearby. There's there's like live cultures everywhere and they can just feel it. I'm glad those vibes are getting out. That means that my sourdough starter and kombucha mother are more powerful than ever. And we're soon gonna run for president. So I look forward to having your support.
1: <laughs> I don't think we'll have any choice but to support you.
0: <laughs> well, Leaving that campaign aside, I do want to start actually a little bit with talking about your entrance into politics because I started my morning today getting excited for our conversation, listening to you speak on other people's platforms. And one of the things that I watched, and I will admit I cried, was Mm -hmm. the speech that you gave when you were announcing your resignation as mayor. Mm -hmm. Because I heard you got a little choked up and it got me. And you said in that speech This is all I've done for my entire adult life so far, is fight for this community. And I thought, wow, that is true and what a statement. So I would love to hear you talk a little bit about why, at age 20, as a Cornell student, you decided to not just hang out on the hill and drink beer and have a good time, but make your way downtown, involve yourself in local politics, and fight for that community.
1: Oh gosh. Oh, it feels like such a long time ago now. Um 16 years ago. Though I guess I, you know, I do not answer the question without going back even further than that, which is that when I when I first got to Cornell, I um found it to be a bit of a lonely place, a very big place. We moved around a lot as a kid. Maybe that's where, where I should start. We were quite poor housing insecure, homeless often. And the last 10 years of my life, uh, my grandparents took us in and then helped us get set up with our own apartment in a very small town of Earlville, New York, 800 people.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, and in a town of 800 people, um, you know, it's not Mayberry, but it is Cheers. I mean, everybody knows your name. And not only knows your name, but stops and asks how your mother's father is doing, and um, reminds you to come to the big sale on Thursday. And Cornell was the first place uh, where I really did not feel at home. It didn't feel welcoming. People did not know my name. What's more than that, they didn't look you in the eye. It was very, it's very, it could be a cold place, especially as a freshman. And I was not having a good time, but uh, I was good at math. And so, you know, it's always a comfort to, to try and do something that you're good at. So I went down to, when I say good at math, I don't mean like ornell level good at math. I was a college freshman that's good at high school freshman math, right? I'm like, oh, I'll go tutor. Um, eighth graders, ninth graders in math, so. And it was almost immediate almost immediate the second week i was there um the aunt of one of my students asked how my mother was second week and so i i don't think i ever my heart ever really went back up on a hill from there from that october freshman year my my time my energy um my love was spread downtown in the city and in the, the community. And so I got involved in this way and that started working at <clears throat> the cooperative extension, uh, had an internship, was a doorman at a bar. And all of that combined with all the stuff that I carried from my childhood, a conviction we could do better, particularly in housing, which is Ithaca's largest problem. Let me to just never shut up. I think was the problem. And when you never shut up, people are like put up or or shut up. So yeah, my junior year, I ran for the city council. But really it was like an inversion of that. It really felt like I was running for the city council and happened to be in college. It's not like I came off the hill to run. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. I'm also curious, um, as you describe your childhood moving around a lot, I know that for a lot of people... Um, who get involved in politics, and especially, you know, more towards the liberal side of things, one of the things they're most passionate about is public education. Um, And I'm curious, in that sort of tumultuous moving around upbringing, what was your schooling like? And did you enjoy school? Or was it challenging because of how much you moved?
1: Yeah, the more we moved, the more challenging it was. And um, frankly, the luckiest thing that happened to me was that the last um, seven or so years of my schooling was more or less in the same town, right? Because uh, mercifully, college applications don't ask your GPA in middle school or elementary school. If they did, they would have saw that I missed you know, 40, 50 days of school a year, every year. And it wasn't because I wasn't... I just never felt comfortable. You know, you move around and you have a hard time making friends, but also it's just it's, so much anxiety around it. <clears throat> you know, switch schools, middle of a year, you switch subjects. You could be a couple weeks ahead, a couple weeks behind. I actually had incredible anxiety around math once because of a switch like that that happened. And, um,
0: oh, the curriculums can be totally different
1: from yeah, one school even, to another. Yeah, exactly. And it was, it was literally just by dint of what, where we happened to be like the, what the path a teacher happened to take. And so I remember fifth grade, um, it was fifth grade. I joined the class to doing long division. I'd never even seen it. I do not even know what they, and this is back when they had a bathroom in, um, In the classroom. Remember, you have bathrooms in each classroom. A little tiny toilet. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) So the teacher the first week, she's like, so do you have like tummy troubles or what? Because I kept having panic. I would go into the bathroom five times for a math period to like sweat and panic in the the bathroom. Not my proudest moment, right? But, you know, stability, extremely important. That's why housing security... Is the, the thing I care most about because if people can live where they want and stay where they want to live, um, you're able to build lives of of purpose and satisfaction. There was even a study about the American, you know, the American dream. American dream is what I mean to put most crassly to move from this class to the next one. Can you do it? Can you actually do it? There's one study said that, yes, on average you can, um, but it requires uh, 20 years of uninterrupted good luck and 20 consecutive years. So, and then what counts as bad luck? Bad luck is um, an accident that causes you to to lose time or to use work or require medical bills and eviction. Um, divorce can be, divorce can also be good luck, depending on who you're married to, of course. Um, losing your job because of the downsizing, etc. Having to move unexpectedly, right? These are the things that could interrupt and reset that twenty-year cycle. Well, sure enough, here, here I am. It's thirty-six. It's twenty years of uninterrupted good luck. I've been in the middle class for about three months now, and it is fucking terrific. Hell yeah! Two thumbs up. I recommend. I go to Whole Foods, and I'm like, whatever I want. I'm not checking my bank account.
0: Yeah, you're like, I'll have the organic apples. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. yeah. Switch. And then I,
1: and then I swipe it, the card and walk away. And I yeah. think that's uh, you know, should be the the aim of all people work in policy. Is can we shorten that time frame? And can we eliminate the setbacks? Can we make it so that somebody who gets ill doesn't have to go bankrupt, you know, and start over. Or somebody, a kid that has to move school districts, um, doesn't check out completely. And it's clear we, we just have a long, long way to go. I'll tell you, the pandemic, schools closed. We lost so many children. We don't even know yet how many children have been lost. Um, yeah. How many kids never went back to school and aren't even registered anywhere in the system. Nobody even knows where they are. So it's uh, we got a ways to go.
0: Yeah. And I can say as a mom who had three kids in school during the pandemic, um, especially for my oldest, Mm. she did her freshman year of high school on the Internet.
1: Mm.
0: And that is not a good place to learn algebra, too. (laughs) Especially not when you're depressed, because this is your freshman year, you've waited for it your whole life, and now you're in your bed in your pajamas. No one cares if your camera's on or not. The teachers all feel guilty about what's going on, so they aren't holding you to any standard. They tell you deadlines don't matter, hand it in when you can— no one's learning anything. And the kids that are seeing each other outside of school, they're not playing sports. There's no extracurriculars. Anyone that's going out is probably sneaking around behind their parents' back doing bad things. And it was just this year where so much fell apart. And this is a very privileged community in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., with kids who have access and we're not Intermittently homeless during the pandemic did not worry if their parents were going to get fired from their restaurant job Like these were kids whose parents were fine financially and still just The collective trauma of going through that and losing the routine the normalcy the touch points that school provides for children It wrecked them Um, So yeah,
1: and and then and then just imagine I mean me freshman year. I know this is true for a lot of us like, you, we we suffered through math because, but we were excited for band, right? right. Well, or we came to school for gym and happened to learn some biology along the way. Or you wanted to see your friends at lunch. Or you loved biology, but was forced to sit through band and learn something through that too, you know? Right. And we're uh, moving so much of the social, I mean, look, it happened. That's not the issue. The issues that happened, what did? What can we learn from is, oh, my God, how important are public schools, how important that they exist, that they should stay open. You know, crime increased. looks like it's going back down now, but crime increased in the wake of the pandemic. And that was the first time in in 30, um, 32 years that crime in America increased, right? We were on a three-decade streak of crime going down. And it's funny, a lot of people think that crime increased because, you know, because we defunded police departments. We didn't defund any police departments. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, they're the only things we didn't defund. We closed the schools, the after-school programs. We closed the job centers. We closed the playgrounds and the parks. And crime went up. So what should that tell us about what it takes to bring crime down, right? Let's build twice as many public schools as we have. And for me, it was, it's, you know, schools, but it's just adults. Yeah. Other adults. Love my mom. Love my grandparents. was never like a rebellious child. always got along with them. Y- you can't just have three loving adults in your life. Yeah. It's not enough. Yeah. Not I mean, enough. You need, you need uh, a village. Uh, how original how <laughs> is that? How original is that?
0: That's the first time I've ever heard that. It's something Ish. about taking a village. This is very yeah. unique.
1: No, write this down. Write this down.
0: <laughs> I'm going to quote this. This is quotable. Um, you know, to that point, I remember during that freshman year, my daughter's grades were suffering. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, like, what the heck? You know, like, I get it. It's a hard time, but you can't just let it all slip away. And she said, you know, I'm used to being able to walk up to my teacher and have a conversation. I don't know how to do that now. Mm. And I think a lot of adults who even pre-pandemic, there was Zoom. We had Zoom meetings and emails and conference calls. We had some sense of how to keep personal relationships going at a distance. And even for adults, the transition obviously was difficult. But I think for a kid who her only experience of having a job was attending school every day her entire life to suddenly Mm. be navigating, how do I schmooze my AP English teacher over email? She had no tools for that. Yeah. So yeah. yeah.
1: And even in yeah, adults as you say we we always said in City Hall that the 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 pre-meeting and the post meeting are more important than the meeting. Yes. You no, know, everybody's in the room and it's like, oh hey, by the way, I did see your email. I was let me just tell you now because I didn't get a chance to respond. Oh yes, and actually, yes, let's let's agree to do that next Thursday. Okay, now let's start the meeting, right? Right. Can't do it on Zoom. Right. And That post-meeting, hey, I know things got heated in there. Do you want to go talk about it? I hope you understood where I was coming from. Also doesn't happen on Zoom. So a lot of our civic interactions have gotten worse and more coarse um, as we went online.
0: Yeah. So there's two things that I want to interject here. Um, And then I have more formal questions for you, although we could just chat all day. But... The first thing is that this sort of makes me think big picture how, you know, you work in policy and politics. You're passionate about, ooh, you're passionate about housing security. Um, And yet, immediately, we're talking about the pandemic. And obviously, it's a hot topic, but it also really drives home this concept. And one of the reasons that I wanted to speak with you, which is like, you can't separate public health from a functioning democracy. These are things that are completely interdependent Mm -hmm. and a functioning public health system relies on a functioning society and democracy and a citizen, you know, populace. Um, and so I think that even though you might not think of yourself as a public health professional, I see you as a public health professional because the work that you do is so important to public health. Um, so that's one thing that I wanted to just drop in there after that little side note.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> and again, and, I just, I, 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 I mean, I agree with you. I think on on societal as well as personal levels two problems dwarf all others and the money problems and health problems. And you think you, you think on a personal level you've got problems as you're going through your day or through your life, um, and when you encounter either a money or a health problem, boy, does everything else. Change. Oh my god! When you're waiting for those test results, how 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 bad really is the wallpaper in your apartment, or how annoyed really are your coworkers? You know, uh, antics like. Those <clears throat> those are a problem of a different magnitude, and at the societal level, that's true too. And I do think of particularly democracies—not just government, but democracies—as a form of government
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, should should function as a healthy screening. You know, you're, you're going to be able to nail this metaphor better better than I can. But like, what 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 would be the system of the body that clears toxins from the um, the people, liver
0: or the lymphatic system, maybe.
1: Okay, sure. Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> exactly, because there shouldn't be, um, and this is what's so frustrating. Because this is this is democracy is the only system we figured out so far of government that should encourage optimism, not cynicism. You know when I. Right now, I've spent a lot of time registering voters and convincing them to vote. And folks will say, oh, well, politics are corrupt. That's why I don't vote. Oh, my God, that's why you shouldn't vote. That's the whole point. That's like saying the air is so polluted. I don't want to plant any trees. The trees clean the air, right? It's like votes clean the politics. And, of course, in a dictatorship, you should say there's no point in trying because the dictator is corrupt different right but here we have a chance to prevent that and uh, I do think it's part of a healthy um, body of a nation if the democracy is functioning healthily because it will clear out and screen out quite a lot of toxins that could that could otherwise take us over
0: uh, I love that you brought the liver metaphor into this because I was just saying to a friend I was talking about the liver. And I think that it's a great metaphor for a democratic government. Because what I was saying to this friend is, we ask so much of our liver. And then when it struggles to function, we feel like it's not good enough and we get frustrated with it. But our liver, you know, when you hear sort of like pop science conversations about the liver, it's like, oh, it, It like removes toxins and like it helps you like party on alcohol and then it'll like help sweep the alcohol out like, yay the liver. But like, oh, by the way, the liver stores glycogen so that when you're sleeping overnight and you haven't eaten for 12 hours, you don't die. And oh, by the way, the liver is constantly communicating with your gut and having a conversation about how it should function optimally in response to the different microbes that are present in your gut. And oh, by the way, the liver digests fats like the liver is responsible for, you know, garbage removal public schools like basically to sort of bring this metaphor home
1: it sounds like government and we ask so much
0: of the government and then when it's not perfect we're like it's bad it's like whoa maybe we're putting a lot on it and it needs us to like you know do some maintenance work drink
1: drink some water exactly
0: exactly (laughs) take a week off from drinking you know
1: and i and i don't and i don't um i know the vast, vast majority of what government does sounds like just like the liver. I mean, I just learned four things. I had no idea. Um, are invisible. Exactly. Which is an issue. You know, th- there's 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 some things that are hyper-visible. Your, what gets taken out of your paycheck and taxes. You can see that, right? Um, and then there are benefits that are visible. And then there are benefits that are invisible, right? You're a married couple in a high-income bracket. You get pretty big tax breaks, but nobody sends that check to your house with a with a stamp on it that says this is for being married and for owning a house. This is your thirty four thousand dollars that we are giving you for doing that. Um, But if you're poor and you need two hundred dollars in food assistance, they will make sure that, you know, this is two hundred dollars coming from the government. And not only do we want you to know that we want the clerk at the in the store to know it. want the people standing behind you in line to know it. So we label certain things, but most things not only are unlabeled, but unthinkable. Sometimes to force myself back into a place of gratitude, I will try, actually. And think consciously of every system that's keeping me alive and healthy and thriving. And it's exhausting. By 9 a.m., you're done. You can't even think of it anymore. You wake up, you say, I slept through the night because I had no fear that this building was going to collapse around me because it had been inspected, it had been built to code Um, I had no fear that a fire was going to claim my life in the night because there's fire department that a raving band of pillagers was good because the police department was just going to come into my house and take me and my, my stuff. And then I woke up. Okay. Now what? I turned on the faucet to brush my teeth and water came out. Can you imagine that 99% of humans who've ever lived have never had that experience? Never. It was clean the clean water that I could drink, splashed all over my body willy-nilly. Oh my yeah, and w- with without concern for either the cost because the government subsidizes water to an alarming degree. If you <laughs> the price, you're getting out of the pump for water based on what it actually took to get the water to you. These miles and miles of underground networks. And then I flushed the toilet and anything I didn't want in my house was whisked away as if by magic. Right, and we're we're like six thirty-five a.m. by now, and experienced several miracles brought to us by a vast conspiracy of uh, generally well-meaning people trying to build a government structure that allows us to live lives of purpose and satisfaction. As before, you get on the road, cross the sidewalk, street lights. That, that that the other cars on the road are not going to spontaneously combust around you because they too have been inspected.
0: Although you're <laughs> in California, so the house collapsing on you and the cars exploding <laughs> is more <laughs> likely than ever. Those <laughs> are like, self-driving cars.
1: <laughs> that's actually true. That's actually true. But even that, just that the other people in the cars probably took a course and had to get a license. And that when I stop at Starbucks, that the the general hygiene is inspected by a health department, so I'm not going to become deathly ill. Th- these are all things that, in a libertarian world, um, our our days would be much nastier, much longer, uh, much harder, with more suffering, more fear and suspicion, and a lot less productive. I mean, by the time you left the house for the day, you <laughs> I'm not sure you might ever leave the house for the day, and so. Finding a way to communicate that to people who, who get so, see one thing their government did that they did not like, and they go, see, it's like taxes are a waste.
0: Right. Well, and again, I mean, I could absolutely play this whole metaphor out with the body because you wake up with a bad hangover and it's like, ugh, my liver,
1: not yeah. doing its job. And it's
0: like, <laughs> okay, well, if you really went down the list of all that it did for you last night while it was processing that alcohol and also digesting your dinner, you'd be very impressed.
1: Right. Um,
0: And I think what this kind of brings up for me, and this is a conversation that spans public health, public policy, human health, family dynamics, is this space between optimal functioning and functioning and whether or not it's possible to appreciate functioning while striving for optimal functioning. I think that it is. And I think that a lot of people think that it isn't. And that's where they get so frustrated.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I hear exactly what you're saying. I think w- which is that the, the um, I mean, I, I hope it's clear how grateful I am for everything, government and it's not just government, this collective, the power of collective action has done to make people's lives easier um, and better. And still I've spent, as you just said, my entire adult life um, uh, stirring shit up because I'm not happy enough, because it's not good enough. And I think it's possible to to both um, think that good is good, right? Good is good. It is good that things are good, right? It's... And I think I live in a middle space, so I think good is good. I think better would be better. And I don't think perfect is possible, yeah. so I don't get discouraged when things aren't perfect because I'm like, I don't think it ever will be. So I'm not bummed out by that. But I also do think we could do better. I think it's one of those what's that math problem where if you cut a line in half, and in half, and in half again, cut it in half again, and half again. You'll never actually reach the end of the line. We'll just keep getting closer. That's fine by me. Let's keep cutting it in half. You know,
0: yeah. if
1: uh, if we can make housing a little bit more affordable next year, let's do that make transit easier next year. Let's do that. Bring down healthcare costs next year. Let's do that. And if, if we can't next year with one vote, fix everything, well then fuck it. Why do we bother? Politics is stupid. I don't like the guy running for president. I'm not going to get involved. That's I think a danger. That's the dangerous attitude. People, people want to fix it in one swing. It's like, you know, they want to take one pill for their liver or, or, um, hope that their next fad is going to be the thing that solves everything. No, I just just try try and do better.
0: Yeah, and I think that that is – I mean, first of all, I think that the human body Mm -hmm. is not built for perfect. It's not built for steady state. We are animals designed for dynamism. Yes. And so is society. It has to be. You can't actually design a society to – function perfectly in a steady state because steady states don't exist in nature for longer than a couple of seconds, maybe yeah. minutes. And so if you think to yourself, my goal with my health is to reach a place where I am perfectly healthy 24 hours a day, where all my blood work always looks great yeah. and my heart rate is steady, well, then you would never exercise, Right, right. you would never go on a first date, yeah. You would never do public speaking. Anything that made you feel excited, thrilled, nervous, alive—any scenario where you push yourself—you would never do it because that you can't would try not. New recipe. You, you can't couldn't try. It. You couldn't massage kale.
1: No, let's, we, let's not get into this. I, I, I feel some way about massaging kale. The, but the, the, I love this about the dynamism. If you've never roadwork is if you try to maintain a system of roads in say Ithaca, New York, you will have learned this really well. Because your ideal is like, the road should be smooth. That's their ideal state, they should be smooth. And so we're going to repave them. Well, problem number one, the act of repaving makes them impassable. Can't tell you how many people call my office and say, we need to fix these potholes, also this road work's ridiculous, why are you doing road work everywhere? I'm like, bro. You need to pick a lane. You need to pick. You need to pick a side here because you can't complain about both. I will accept the complaints about the roadwork or the bottles. No. And so, okay, stop. And then, boy, I, man, I I would get so excited. We'd pave a street, and I would just stand there. Beautiful, beautiful. It's as nature intended.
0: And then it would rain and
1: freeze. Yes. Six months later. I actually remember literally calling the, the director of engineering. And I was like, Hey, Green Street, we just paved it. There's a crack, a tiny seam running down the left side. And he's like, Yeah. Yeah. That's What'd called you job say-
0: security, my friend.
1: <laughs> I'm like, well, We what, left what, that seam. Yeah. No, he goes, What are, what are we going to do about it? He goes, Today, nothing. But 10 years from now, we'll rebuild it again. Because it's going to get worse next year and worse the year after that. And while it's getting worse, we'll be in other neighborhoods in the city, repaving other streets that are in year nine or 10, sometimes 14 or 15 of their replacement cycle. And I mean, that's a that's a really good lesson because of course you do. You want it, you want things to be perfect, but the best we can hope for are efficient cycles, right? Of dynamism. I love how you how you put that.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that I, um, you know, as you know, I returned to school as an adult after working in the food industry and in sales and business for more than 10 years and taking my experience in those fields and in management and then diving into public health and then
1: immunology
0: nourishing. and nutrition, mm-hmm. I've been able to see a lot of metaphors that exist between mm-hmm. biology and Um, especially microbiology and functioning Mm -hmm. societies and and policy systems. Mm -hmm. And I just think that if we expect a steady state, we're wrong. And we have to look for ways to um, increase our tolerance for a wide variety of dynamics. And that Mm -hmm. goes for society. It's all about, and this is true, you can do a weightlifting metaphor. What's going to make you stronger? If you're a weightlifter and you plateau, how do you get stronger? Get more flexible because the more you can build that flexibility into your lifting, the more space you open up to build more strength, more dynamic within your nervous system, more capacity to lift. That is true in the human body, in our immune system, and it's true in our societies. If we look at society and we say, my goal is to have a society of all rich people who are all healthy all the time. Well, you could probably have like one really creepy town called Stepford and eventually there's going to be murders, you know, like it's just going to go wrong. Um, I actually was just saying this to someone, um, sort of like a metaphor that came to me for um, tolerance in a society Mm -hmm. and uh, sustainable microbiological communities. So I've heard a lot in the news recently maybe it's not the common news it might just be like the nerd news when you're when you're looking for nerdy microbiology topics but i've heard a lot about coral reefs and yeah. a coral reef is a beautiful ecosystem mm-hmm. and it's extremely diverse right mm-hmm. and then over time through constant pollution global warming temperature changes Only some species will be able to survive and the species dynamics of that coral reef become more and more homogenous. They're more and more the same. The number of species shrinks. Mm -hmm. Now maybe you're uh, a starfish living in that coral reef and you're like, hey, all my neighbors are starfish. This is sweet. Everybody looks like me. I love it in this coral reef. Mm -hmm. And you should be very afraid because that's like five minutes before that entire ecosystem collapses. And one day what looks like a beautiful coral reef literally overnight is desolate, empty, Mm -hmm. destroyed. Because when you find yourself in a homogenous ecosystem, that is right before it dies, collapses. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about how, in our current polarized world, you have a news feed, you have your social media feeds, and people enjoy curating their news streams, their social media feeds, to be more and more like them. These people look like me. They think like me. I don't have to feel challenged in my social media feed. Everyone agrees with my politics. If you look around yourself and everyone around you agrees with you, you should be afraid, I think. Because I think if we look at the metaphors from biology and pull them into society, the minute you find yourself surrounded by homogenous opinions, no one challenging you, that is right before a collapse. And I think that we should learn from that and pull that into our democracy.
1: Totally. Because it's a, because especially if you reach a bottleneck, which will happen when you, so I love that metaphor because in, in democracies, The point of democracy is we all got to make some choices together. It's sort of what it means, democracy. We're going to get together and make some choices. We're going to go left, right. Are we going to invest in this or that? Are we going to invade here or there? And a homogenous group that is making decisions will make decisions faster. And sometimes even under limited circumstances will make decisions better because they don't waste a lot of time fighting. They understand each other's values. They will just pick and choose. But over a long period of time, they will underperform diverse groups. Um, even very smart, very well-educated homogenous groups have been given a lot of opportunities. Uh, you know, this is a, a constant. People are like, well, why shouldn't I be able to just hire uh, who I want for the job. I want to hire a bunch of uh, Harvard MBA guys. They're the smartest people in the world. This is It's not my fault that they're all white guys. Um, I should be able to hire them if I want. And enough with this DEI crap. What am I talking about here? I'm talking about Peter Thiel and all the, you know, Silicon Valley, all those things. Well, to them I say, you know, fucking good luck, bro. Because I play basketball. It is better to be Tall and basketball and short, yes? But he's, I mean, I think most people agree with that. We look at the NBA, people are pretty tall. The closer you are to the rim, the better. Better to be tall. Better to have gone to Harvard MBA if you want to go in business. Makes sense, smart, test scores, well-connected, et cetera. Well, then why doesn't every NBA team just put out all seven-foot-tall players? There are enough of them. You could just start from the one to the five, seven-foot-tall guys. Because the first time somebody uh, puts out a six-foot-tall player against that seven-foot-tall team, he's going to slice and dice them to pieces because he can see angles that they can't. He can reach places on the court that they can't. Right? Diverse teams work the same way. When you have people from different life backgrounds and perspectives, they can see angles that the Harvard MBA can't. They'll understand... Business opportunities. You know how many business opportunities have been missed by not understanding the taste, the cultural preferences of black Americans, of Filipino Americans, of, of women. <laughs> Maybe the most um, undertapped market of of the, the last 150 years of American capitalism was you just had a bunch of men being like, what do women like? Lenders, right? And they who knows how many, how many sales. We're missed by that. And the same thing goes in a democracy. Boy, I'll tell you, Kevin McCarthy, um, one of the, I think, uh, least principled, least uh, um, sharp members of the Republican caucus, who is, of course, the, the recent House Speaker who was deposed, said something out loud that I've never seen anybody on his side say before, which is, he is worried because when he looks at the democratic caucus, it looks like America. This is true. If you look at a picture, you know, they always put pictures, um, every year. Here's the Republican caucus, here's the democratic caucus. If you look at the democratic caucus, it looks like you just really grabs 200 people at random. There are, um, young women, older men and black, um, women and Asian men and, uh, all different sizes and body types and stuff. And if you look at the picture of the Republican caucus, it looks like um, a 60 and over all-white male club that they've allowed nine women to join. Now, truly, putting my values aside, right? If I knew nothing, of it, putting my values aside. If I just looked at those two pictures and say, which group do you trust over the next two years? I'm not even going to tell you what choices they have to make. Over the next two years, we need these people to make a series of choices for you. Which one do you want to do it? I have a great affection for white men over 60. Some of my closest friends, my mentor just passed, my grandfather. Great affection for white men over 60. It's not that I don't trust white men over 60. Just I'd be like, oh my God, they're all gonna see it, the the basketball court from the same angle, these guys are. Well, there'll be a whole bunch of diverse viewpoints on this side. Those diverse viewpoints are gonna lead us to some better outcomes, I think. Let's let's stick with uh with that kind of diversity. But of course, you know, to get there means unpacking a, a lot of the prejudices people carry around. Um, women, around people of color, around frankly anybody who doesn't look like them, and so we're you know this is th- this is still the central, the unresolved civil war of the United States is still around these issues because sure. it's certainly not about performance anymore. I can tell you that 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 ship has sailed. I mean, there's just no doubt about it that progressive administrations achieve more for the American people. Um. But diverse uh, administrations make people uncomfortable, make certain set of people uncomfortable. So you still got to figure it out.
0: Speaking as a woman, I do love blenders. So they nailed it on that. But many other things they got wrong, like the tampon commercials where they're all playing sports. It's like, no, that's not what we want. Can we just have a day off? I don't know. What is this? (laughs) This is clearly men who are like, you should be hot every day of the month. We're like, okay,
1: You don't want to go for a swim? And what about the gala? What about the gala at the end of the night?
0: Put on your bikini and get out there. Don't laze about, (laughs) women. See, dynamism. We need more tolerance for dynamic existence. Life is change. That is the only thing that we can see that we can learn from nature is change is the only constant. I feel like based on- I want to get back to
1: your point, if I could, just to say, though, that I don't Again, I think uh, I understand people trying to optimize. So that's all. That's the reason I get up and go to work, too. We should try to optimize, but we should not be discouraged. We should not expect perfection because then that is where you get discouraged and you opt out completely. Um, I'm sure that happens in the personal healthy level, too, right? Somebody's been drinking too much. They try and cut back. It doesn't work. So they go, I'm going to stop trying. It doesn't work. I'm just going to all, you know. The same thing can happen in government. And I think it's very, I mean, let's just put it in very real terms for him right now. I know people are dissatisfied. There are people who are disappointed in Joe Biden, right? So they think, well, that's it. I'm never going to vote for him or anybody else. My God, can you imagine? It's like saying "My, my liver didn't work well last night. So I woke up hungover this morning. I think I'll have it removed. I think I'll have a room, especially when you ask what the issues are. Why, why don't you like Joe Biden because he's too old? Donald Trump is three years younger and 20 years crazier. Like, what are you? What are you, aren't foreign he's not foreign policies not doing enough to protect civilians as compared to to Donald James Trump? Like, woo, woo, you know, so and I think that is the fault, of course. I think there are things that Biden should be doing better. That's the first thing. I don't want to victim blame, right? There's that's but. The 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 second problem really comes from people thinking, if it's not perfect, then I'm not interested. Right. If I can't optimize, then I won't bother. Yeah. And uh, that comes from a failure of expectations, like which as you said, will not, not always be perfect. There is going to be cycles. What we can try and do is we can of course try and make our health better, you know. We can lower the rate of recovery. We can eat better food. We can do all, all of those things. But um, we should try without being discouraged by a failure to reach perfection.
0: Yeah. That just really quick. And then I, I want to hear um, you hinted about your older white mentor. So I want to hear a bit about that friend. But um, I just want to share that on this topic of, you know, Not letting perfect be the enemy of good, which applies to both personal health and society. I think every single podcast episode that I recorded from the first one to maybe the seventh one, one of my kids would get sick and or not sleep the night before. It just it was like a curse. And it was like the universe challenging me like, oh, are you going to cancel? Because you didn't sleep last night. Is that what you're going to do? Like you have this person scheduled. You have everything set up. You're going to cancel because because you're not going to feel your best. And no, I wasn't going to cancel. I was going to show up. And I had to kind of prove to myself that even though I was run down, hadn't slept, I was going to still show up. Same thing as a mom of three going back to college. I mm. had finals that I came into having not slept because I was holding a coughing child all night. What, am I going to fail it? No, no. I'm going to keep my 4.0, goddammit. Like, that's what I came here to do. And I think that everyone um, benefits from having things go poorly mm. or not perfectly and showing up anyway. Like, that just – the the building that muscle, getting those reps in of it didn't go as I wanted it to and I still showed up. It's so important personally and, like, what you're saying – It's so important societally. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but I look around the world right now and I go, yeah, America is jacked up. I could list a hundred complaints that I have about our food system, our healthcare system, our public health system, our education system. I could give you a list. And also, I don't want to move. There's nowhere else that I want to go. Like, what a terrible and beautiful situation to be in right it's like when you look at your kids and they're driving you crazy and it's like you are driving me crazy and yet i don't want somebody else's kids you are my kid i want to help you figure out how to get through this we're going to get through it together those reps that i built for many years because i was a teen mom so i'm i'm deep in this game mm. but also as a citizen um it's like uh, i'm so frustrated and fine i'm gonna keep showing up because What other choice do I have, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. And it's especially if you if you care more about the right thing happening than feeling good. You know, rage quitting is what we call it, those of us who play video games when you're somebody's beating you, you know. You know what I'm talking about? My my
0: 10-year-old plays Roblox and she talks a lot about people rage quitting.
1: Yes, yes. And my sister would rage quit with me often over chess. Checkers, really, but anything. Is when if things aren't going well, literally tip over the board, just out of. She couldn't help herself. I could see it always coming. Couldn't help herself. Rage really quit. Um, and you do it because you're so frustrated. You know, any pressure that needs a release, right? I don't like this person. I won't vote for them again. To hell with the consequences. It's understandable. It's really understandable. And I think I've even seen people try to come to a logical conclusion. Well, no, if if I don't vote for Joe Biden, then the country will be punished with more with more Donald Trump, which will be what they deserve. And it'll be a shock to the system to accept everybody, and gets us to a better place eventually in the future. So I am, I'm willing to go through four years of Donald Trump. To, to send that message to the Democrats or to the political system or to the whomever. Well, first, it, a lot of people said that 2016 too. Um, I'm glad they were able to survive it. There are many millions of people who weren't. And because of our pulling out of climate treaties, because of our eradication of trust and the, the the Atlantic Alliance, Transatlantic Alliance. Because the bigotry that I mean, not to mention the slow response to coronavirus. But because of the bigotry that's been allowed to breathe and breed. Well, it's just come from an incredibly privileged place to say, I will survive it, and I want to send a message to everybody else. This is the first thing. But this the, the second thing too is. None of us are that smart. None of us are that smart. We don't know how this message is going to be perceived, especially a second time, right? Electing Donald Trump a second time might not just send a message for four years. We may never get an election again. Uh, I, I, I don't mean to sound alarmist. I mean you've known me a long time. You know that's not usually my style. I don't run around screaming about hyperbolic. This, you know, I'm I my blood pressure pretty low and i never tend to panic and i would just always talk through everything he means it this time i think he was four months away from figuring out how to pull off the insurrection i think if the transfer of power was scheduled for like may and not january then january 6th would have happened in like april and he would have he would have pulled it off he has just started to figure out he now has released a plan He just started to figure out how um, to avoid any supervision from the United States Senate at all. We're getting too deep into politics here. I know this is not the point of the podcast, but if we thought it was bad last time, this guy has already stated his intention to just have acting secretaries of everything, which means the Senate does not have to approve anyone, which means uh, he could make his cousin the Secretary of Defense. He could make his uh, bodyguard the Attorney General. And he can run this like a banana republic. And uh, when the next election comes up, he'll just say, I'm getting reports from my cousin, the attorney general, and my uh, bodyguard, the secretary of defense, that there's a serious uh, Muslim, globalist, terroristic threat, and it won't be safe to hold the elections next month. We'll let you know when it'll be safe.
0: I like how you almost slipped into a Trump impression there. I could feel it. You were edging. I was,
1: I was, was fighting myself back. I mean,
0: yeah. <laughs> you dialed it back.
1: I did. I did.
0: Yeah, it's um. Well, okay. So I'm gonna go a little bit out of order and jump down to a question that I had written here because I think that it's important. Um, sort of branching off of this topic. Don't most people want the same thing? We keep hearing America is more divided than ever, and leaving aside what obvious horseshit that is. Isn't it? Even worse than that, like, isn't it just so clear when you sit down with people, real people, and have real conversations, and you don't take it to a political, you know, red versus blue teams kind of a place, but you sit down with someone as a human in communities all over the country, which I know you've been doing, and you ask them about what they want, what their American dream is. Don't most people want the same, if not similar things? And if so, why are we addicted to believing this story that we are so different, that the other guy is definitely our enemy, and that it's a better idea to put a strong man in charge to bully everyone than to maintain a free-functioning society?
1: Yeah. We do want the, the, the same things. I mean, to a degree that I think would alarm most people I think you, you, those of us who worked in the government know this. But if you just send a survey to people, left, right, center, and uh, listen almost every government function and say, hey, how do you feel about clean water? We like it? Yes. Be willing to pay for it? Yes. Yeah. So should the roads be smooth? Yes. Um, should streetlights function? Yes. Should a fire department, a socialized fire department, protect everyone regardless of whether or not you paid your fire insurance bill, Right, which is what some places still have private fire insurance as opposed to socialized fire departments. I mean, on and on and on and you know, there will be areas of disagreement about, well, who should bear the burden of these um, services? Should the rich pay more uh, or should everyone have skin in the game, right? That question has for a long time, probably the last 50 years, been the main dividing line between the parties, which is, okay, most people want the same thing. How do we pay for it? Do we have more progressive taxation or do we have a flatter tax? The Democrats wanted progressive taxation and the Republicans wanted a flatter tax. But there was always, and in all people, this really dark current underneath that question. And um, there was a bit of a gentleman's agreement in American politics that neither party would flirt with that current too deeply. Republicans did it a little more than Democrats, right? They would wink and nod and dog whistle. George W. Bush would say a little something, and said, hey, you know, dark current. What is the dark current? Let me actually like, let's be very, very real about this. Most people want the same things, right? Most people want the same things. But there are some people who are worried that what's standing between them and what they want are others. Others. People of a different religion or a different skin tone. Um, just even if it's people from that other town over there that I don't know, they are just worried. Hey, aren't those people trying to take my shit? Aren't they? Are they trying to take my job? Are they trying to take my wife? Are they Are trying to take my daughters? They're trying to take away from me the things I care about, football or hamburger, or, or the flag, before the fourth of July. Somebody's trying to take something from me, right? And for a long, long time, again, both parties were more or less responsible and saying, Hey, look, that's that's really not what's going on here. Everybody just wants the same things. Nobody's trying to take your stuff. Like, if immigrants are moving this country, it's because they're seeking the American dream. It does not have to come at your expense. If um, black people move into your neighborhood, it's not because they're trying to rob from you, seeking a better life. Let's dispute. Even John McCain, the last gasp of this gentleman's agreement before Barack Obama was elected and the agreement went away, was uh, the last person. And he did a something. I don't know if you remember this during town halls. He... People started standing up and saying things that right now don't even sound crazy. Oh yeah, to, like, and
0: he would shoot them down.
1: He would shoot them down. They didn't even sound that, you know. They were like, "I heard he was a Muslim," and he wouldn't even let her finish the sentence. He goes, "Please, no, no, please, you have to. It's not true. We have real differences." But I don't think uh, he he is a Christian. He says that he's a Christian. is a Christian. And he only wants good things for this country. We just have differences of opinions, right? We went from that to the president of the United States, insisting to this day that Obama is a Muslim, not only a Muslim, but a terrorist loving, sending money over to the, to the terrorist squad so that they can come here and take your job, take your wife, take your children, kill who's important to you, and take the American right blood. life. Now, he did not invent this fear, this fear that there's somebody who's different than you that's a threat to you. He didn't invent it, but he capitalized on it. And I think that genie will be out of the bottle for quite a while. Now, I think there's things we can do about it that actually have very little to do with politics. The The antidote, I think it was Twain said, the antidote to, to prejudice is travel. Um, anybody who's met other people, uh, met whomever they think is the other, almost anybody who's met them has the experience of that prejudice melting away. You know, if you had an idea about um, Iranian people and then you date one in college, you go, oh, there's other people. If you have an idea about immigrants and then you meet them and go, hmm, suspiciously like people. Right, and you can start to expand and expand your version of people. Norman Lear, my uh, mentor and friend, he founded People for the American Way. He's a TV producer on The Family and the Jeffersons. Good times and he put on um, television in the 70s, the first interracial couple to be seen on television. And it wasn't like a special episode or a, a flashpoint controversy. They were just characters in the show every week, he showed the first abortion. Woman in 1976 uh, told her partner on air that she was gonna get an abortion. He said, okay, I'll support you, whatever you need to do, roll credits, right? Firestorm. And he did all these things and more because he was a Jewish kid whose father went to prison when he was nine who went to fight in World War II, 52 bomber missions um, over Nazi Germany, came home, worked hard, square job as an advertiser, and was told over and over again that, that because he was Jewish, he was somehow a threat, that he was not really American. That he was part of the conspiracy that was coming, coming for real Americans, right? And it's American first, again, this is dark current, it always, always existed, it's been here forever. And he set out to fight it, and the way he chose to fight it was not by saying, you know, Donald Trump's a bad man and you're a bigot, I'm gonna convince you of that by calling you a bigot. Um, he just tried to expand the circle of who we saw as, as human. And he had a saying, a saying so, found that he even put it on a bumper sticker on the back of his car. He lived at 101. He drove till he was 95. So I don't know if you can imagine driving behind a 95-year-old man on the freeway in L.A. But you get, he gets a lot of stares, right? So people are like, who is this that is slowing me down right now? And as they'd pull up alongside him, they'd see his bumper sticker. And his bumper sticker said, just another version of you. Who am I? I am just another version of you boy, Norman his whole life fought to help us understand that about each other. And I think if we can um, build more systems, tell more stories, they get more people um, to learn that truth about each other, whether that's mand- you know, two years post high school of service. Right. either AmeriCorps or Peace Corps or the armed services. Um, I think that would be a, a a wonderful way to start to diffuse this horrible, horrible division um, that we're going through. Because, you know, people who go in the armed services end up with few, less bigoted views. And if you notice the number one predictor of somebody who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 was Number one, more than any other demographic, more than any other socioeconomic, was uh, somebody who grew up and still lived in their hometown and had never left for any amount of time.
0: That makes Uh, sense.
1: Yes, because they were convinced of what he would say about other people because they had no firsthand experience of other people. And here's a guy that they watched on TV for decades. He, He played a businessman on TV. He must know what he's talking about. Um, they were sold.
0: I think there's something that I always struggled with growing up, and I think my guess is that you can relate to this, is that I have never had one firm fixed identity, partially because my background is so mixed, partially because I wasn't raised like in a church or something. So there was no community telling me, this is who you are, this is who you have to be. Um, and my parents are both, like, philosophers, so they were just so open-minded that there was no really restriction on how I expressed myself or developed my mind. And, um, you know, half of me comes from a Jewish lineage that fled pogroms in Europe, and mm-hmm. the other half, I'm a certified DAR member because I have relatives you can trace back here into the U.S. to the 1600s. And um, I'm certain that half of my relatives wouldn't like the other half, you know, like, so there's that tension that exists within me, which is like, I am personally diverse enough that I represent the fact that sometimes you don't get to choose whether or not something is homogenous. And so it used to trouble me that I didn't have one identity that I could hang my hat on. But now I see it as such a strength because mm-hmm. I'm able to slip in and out of different groups, different rooms. Um, even the town that I was raised in was extremely diverse. and um, my high school was like sixty percent black. So as a white student, technically, you were in the minority, right? But that was just normal. That's how all of us grew up. And uh, the white students were Jewish and Italian, and, you know, like it was a very mixed group. And then, I remember hearing about certain types of black-white tensions and I couldn't really picture them. They didn't make sense to me based on my upbringing. And then I went to college and I met white people who were raised only around other white people. And I was like, oh. (laughs) Like it was a different type of white person because they hadn't had that experience of being raised among so many other cultures that you just kind of found yourself Figuring it out like none of us quite belong here and we all have to just kind of be scrappy and figure it out They had the experience of their community looking the same everybody belonged and now they were encountering others for the first time Um, And so that experience really molded me and then also my experience of being a teen mom where you know You're 18 19 years old a baby is crying You're going to show up, right? Like I didn't have the chance, the opportunity to just like sleep in and go to brunch. Like I had to show up. And so that muscle memory of showing up despite not feeling my best is there for me. And I'm thinking about for you, obviously you have a mixed background of multiple identities, but also as a kid... Being moved around, not being in control of your circumstances, you didn't have the choice to not show up. I mean, maybe hide in the bathroom having a panic attack a few times, but you weren't just going to not go to school. You weren't going to tell your mom, that's it. You know, you moved me one too many times. I am done being a kid. I am leaving. You had to figure out how to let it be imperfect, but still show up. So, um, I don't know. I would love to hear what your thoughts are on having like a mixed identity, and how bringing that into policy is maybe a strength.
1: I think for sure, and I think there are many, many millions of of Americans who who've had similar experiences. You know, not the same, of course, but similar. Right? Or or like you have lived with certain identities, and you said, you know, realizing that maybe your ancestors wouldn't like each other. I would say maybe because they didn't know each other, right? because they lived many thousands of miles away from each other and only heard of each other through stories or in the, from the pulpit saying these people are enemy or whatever. But they might have liked each other. In fact, at least two of their, at least two of your ancestors liked each other quite a lot.
0: <laughs> it's true,
1: <laughs> and, and there, and hence here you are. Um, and I think that the there's so many people who have had this experience and and act accordingly. We say, hey, you know, prejudice was really hard in my family of um, when we were Irish immigrants. And I don't even remember that, but I remember the stories that my grandparents told me. And for those reasons, I don't think people should go through that. I think we were humans then. I think people coming to this country are humans now. And so we should have a human and humane policy. Uh, and I think there are even more people who would think like that if they had some uh, a better understanding of even their own identity. You know, where I grew up, it's a lot of Scotch Irish um, folks, and I didn't know that that everyone is Scotch Irish because I don't think they know. And I asked through my friends later; two of them had n- didn't even know what I was talking about. They're just like, "Yeah, Scotch Irish—that's that's what we are." Um, because in a homogenous group it's easy for your identity to become invisible or rather for you to believe that your identity is invisible just don't even think about it that's why you hear folks say I'm colorblind but it's ultimately I don't know I I just think it's a a strength the more practice you can have putting yourself in other people's shoes uh, the better a decision maker you'd be when it comes to public policy. And you can literally practice it. I, I was in the debate club, surprising nobody. Uh, I uh, You know, like really, you weren't a basketball star? No. Um, and the debate club is really, really good practice because I don't know if folks know how uh, those um, sorts of debates work, but there will be one issue and they pick an issue for the whole year. And then you will debate that issue but you don't know when you show up, which side of the debate you'll be on and you'll be on one side. And then the next week you'll be on a different one. And then the next week you get a different one, but it's the same debate You do it over and over. And so to be persuasive, you actually have to take that side and argue it deeply, but you also have to think, okay, if I was on the other side of this debate, what would I be thinking and wanting and wanting to do? And therefore, what should I be thinking and wanting and wanting to do? And it it it's a bit uncomfortable for a while, frankly, to live with competing ideas. It's pretty um, pretty upsetting. I mean, it can give you like an actual stomachache. You're like, what do I think? Because it used to be easy if you if you just have the same social media bubble, if you just hang out with only the same people, if you. Read the paper and form an opinion, but never test that opinion against what the other side actually thinks and wants and desires. Um, that's easy. It's easy. It feels good. It feels righteous. You're right all the time. Very good. But when you force yourself to take the other side and you find yourself finding some convincing reasons to go, oh my God. With the people that I thought were just bad and evil and wrong this whole time, do they have legitimate concerns? They can't be right. Because if that's right, then I was wrong about them. If I was wrong about them, then maybe I'm not a good person. You know, it it, it, it can get pretty uncomfortable, but the more we can encourage people to split themselves, to be uncomfortable with ambiguity, to be uncomfortable with setting a um, changeableness, I think the better public policy we end up making and the more flexible we end up making. You know, this was an issue with the pandemic, you had people who decided really quickly, was the, was the virus an epi- uh, uh, a existential threat or was it not a big deal? And if you went into one camp that it was an existential threat and never came out of it, or you decided it's not a big deal and never changed your mind, uh, you were wrong. You were wrong about both, and you probably made some poor choices. And if you're a public policy leader, you probably made some poor choices. But if you were able to change your mind every day to say, um, "How what's going on right now? Okay, it's time to wear masks. Okay, and actually the masks are not enough. It's time to close the schools. Uh, okay, the virus is receding. We can reopen the schools, but we should still wear masks. Okay, the... Um, vaccines are here so we can take the vaccines we take the boosters we can reopen most things right if you could change as the situation changed as the information got changed you made better decisions than the folks who just said you know trump said it's not a big deal i don't think it's a big deal i'm not going to change anything or adjust at all the states that did that had higher mortality rates and uh That is a recent example of something that happens over and over and over and over again. People who uh, become really attached to the ideology will come up with all sorts of reasons why the facts don't match their preconceived opinion as opposed to changing their opinion based on the facts.
0: Yeah. And I think we see in social psychology and education psychology this concept of growth mindset versus fixed mindset and how much better people can perform when they're trained to inhabit a growth mindset, as opposed to believing, you know, if I fail at this task once, I'm a failure, or Mm. if I fail at this task, or it's hard for me, then I must not be good at it, and thus it's not worth trying again, as opposed to having a growth mindset where you're constantly open to trying it differently, trying it again, showing up, doing it a new way, thinking through it differently. Um, Similarly, bringing it back to the weightlifting metaphor, There is strength in flexibility. If you are pure strength, you will always hit a wall and max out before the person who constantly maintains both strength and flexibility. So like you mentioned before, the Harvard MBA. Sure, that person's great. They're smart. They've obviously played the game well to get through society and life and end up as a Harvard MBA. And that's awesome. And they bring a lot to the table. But if they don't know anyone who has struggled in the ways that millions of people struggle, then their mindset is not flexible enough to allow for dynamic solution development, right? Like you need that flexibility. You need that tolerance, that open mindedness. Um, and we just see that is true across everything you know you could you could draw metaphors for all different types of situations and and this would always be the theme that shows up which is flexibility a willingness to change a willingness to keep showing up and trying again is critical to survival and to like you said cutting that thing in half and half and half and half and, half and getting closer never quite reaching it but getting closer to optimizing functionality yeah.
1: Amen. And I, yeah, flexibility is king. I mean, it's, it makes you a, it certainly makes you a better leader.
0: Could Norman yeah. Lear touch his toes?
1: Yeah. At a hundred, at 101 years old, he could touch his toes. He, See? he He literally did it on CBS. They, they did a, uh, um, not only could he touch, his toes, so he did yoga every morning.
0: Oh my God. Yeah. That was my next question.
1: Yeah. Every morning. And he would get, he was like a party trick by the end, you know, 101 touch toes, people would clap. Uh, But he also would love the Tito's martini. I mean, same. Right? Hard to argue. And it took me a while, you know, the first time I met him, he was 94 when we became friends. He ordered a Tito's martini. And it cracked me up, but I didn't know until the next day. And I went Google it, and Tito's had been founded like seven years before that, which means that at the earliest, he had heard about a new brand at eighty eight years old and decided to try it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I know I know guys who, they they only drink Bud Light now because they started drinking it at eighteen or twenty one. Sorry, officer. Started drinking at eighteen, and they're like, "I'm a Bud Light guy. That's what I. That's that's my drink of choice." What does it take to be hundred and one and still trying something new? So saying, yeah, I've enjoyed this for a while. What's next? You know, I uh, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that the that's attitude is part of why he not only lived such a long time, but also had such a remarkable life.
0: I absolutely agree. And I think it's just so funny because <laughs> This flexibility metaphor, but sometimes it's not a metaphor. Sometimes you live to be 101 because you're mentally flexible, you're open to change, and you do yoga every day. So you stay supple. You know, his arteries were like, we're willing to bend and flex, and we're not going to snap. We're not going to cause you any trouble. It's all good. So I'm loving Norman Lear and his legacy as a metaphor for all of us to embrace about how to keep showing up despite setbacks keep pushing the envelope not settling you know not showing up to say oh it's fine and and fine is good enough for me keep showing up keep pushing and stay supple stay flexible those three things and is there anything else that I'm missing what is Norman Lear's legacy to you
1: yeah yeah i gosh i think you summed it up extremely extremely well and, and his legacy is part of what now is my job you know, as president of People for the American Way, it's the organization he founded 43 years ago. He wanted to make sure that our country was never overrun by um, fascist nationalists. You know, the the antithesis of flexibility, suppleness, um, openness is uh, fascism, a rigidity and a um, dictation of what is the social totem pole and where does everyone belong in it? Uh, We don't believe in that. We believe in an open America, and we want to fight for it. And I think he, his, um, you know, he's famous for always saying his two favorite words in the English language are "over" and "next." If something was over, let's see what's next. And he said it served him well when his shows were canceled. It served him well when his shows were hits. Served him well when his movies, Princess Bride, and Stand By Me did well. It served him well when his movies did poorly. When something was over, what is next? And to 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 um linger too long, he thought was to do disservice to the future. Uh so I know that he would want, you know, it's tough because he would want, and he said so. He wanted us to when he was gone to ask ourselves what's next and to not linger too much, but we're going to linger for a little bit and celebrate the man anyway, because he's not here to stop us from doing it. So if you want check out our website for, we've got, um, tributes to him. And of course, uh, you can sign a letter to the family. He's also, um, Well, I'll just say we're going to keep working in his honor. He, we asked him about death once, and he said, um, "I'm not bothered by the going; it's the leaving. I can't stand. You know, the the going. There's something. There's there's happiness out there. Whatever's beyond this is fine. Just all these people, this whole world. There's so much." uh, that's lovely here that it's hard to think about leaving it. And so I'm comforted by that too, that, that wherever he's going to, he he doesn't mind. And, um, I don't know. We'll just miss him. Miss him.
0: Yeah. That got me. I was the tears They're they're, they're in there because that's so, it's so poignant and it's so beautiful and it just hints to the man that he was, um, in the sense of the, he knows that the work is never done. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, I don't mind going, but like, I feel bad leaving you guys to clean up, you know? <laughs> like, I'm happy to go home at the end of the night. Like, I like my bed, but I feel guilty leaving you to wash all the dishes after this great party. Um, and the work is never done. And that really, again, points to why it's so important for every new generation to find their why and show up. So that kind of brings me to one of my last questions. And I'm very proud of us because we sort of accidentally got to everything on my list without, did it? Did it? we did it. Okay. But my kind of closing question for you is, you know, you and I are both millennials, mm-hmm. very chuggy. <laughs> I'm just trying to hit all the buzzwords. Yeah. Um, And, I think that millennials have a reputation, also I think probably fairly earned, for mm. being a little bit self-centered, not that altruistic and not that involved politically mm. or, um, you know, even um, in their more like local communities, right? And I think part of that, I think you hinted on this earlier when you were talking about um, how The wallpaper won't bother you as much when that medical diagnosis comes in. And this also ties into like the sort of Trump political narrative of if you keep people afraid, then they are so focused on that thing they're afraid of that there's no time to uh, think about, you know, like loving your neighbor. Um, I think that millennials have been stressed and sort of fighting to get by and to figure out how to pay off their student loans and why did they get that degree in English and like what are we all doing here anyway and like people don't belong to communities the way they used to and they don't go to church the way they used to and they don't have families as young as they used to and so I think our generation has been struggling to find our place but now people are dissatisfied and we're hearing our generation say like you mentioned I don't want that old guy representing me and suddenly that 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 tingle of oh but if he's not representing me then who has to oh it's me it's me and my peers and my generation like this is our moment the torch is being handed like the norman lears are leaving us and it's our time Mm -hmm. so you have obviously been involved you've been doing this since you were 20 years old and and maybe like the seed was planted as in your childhood but For the average millennial who's been maybe a little apathetic, kind of enjoyed the Obama years, maybe, and then just kind of like bummed that those drifted away and isn't quite sure how to show up and is like, fuck it. Like, it's it's too messy. I don't I'm just going to abandon it. What do you say? Like, is this our moment? And. How do we show up? Like you chose this moment. You stepped down from your job as mayor. You were the youngest ever mayor in the state of New York at the time that you were elected. You did that job. You were the longest running mayor of Ithaca, New York. And it's not like you weren't reelected. You could have been dictator of Ithaca. And you stepped down. You chose this moment. You said, America needs me. Democracy needs me. Norman Lear calls. So clearly you saw that there was something about this time that you had to rise to a new role a new occasion what do you think other people of our generation and and younger and mm-hmm. older but people who have felt confident that society was fine it's it's functioning I'll focus on my thing yeah what is it time for what do people need to do now
1: yeah yeah, well, I appreciate you mentioning that my my last re-election, I did win 77% of the vote, which is not quite Putin levels, but it's, you know, it close. I had to jail so few of my opponents too, which is... Um, and
0: really. you fed them well in prison.
1: Yeah, I mean, sure. That's what their reports were forced to say. Um, but the, the... I mean, in seriousness, I think you're right. Our generation, it broke, the brokeest generation. Um and so there's a mix of cynicism, right? And it was all through things that not of our making, right? I mean, we graduated into the worst recession since the Great Depression, which w- was a setback that we'll never recover from. And then what's supposed to be the beginning of our of our earning powers and potential is we're having kids, uh, the pandemic happens, and during that pandemic we are being led by a president that we overwhelmingly voted against, but our parents' generation put in power, right? And uh, that builds a lot of resentment and a lot of cynicism. And I I can understand all of it. I understand all of it. I feel all of that sometimes too myself. But sometimes there's an emergency, you know, sometimes there's an emergency. The cars crashed into a ditch. You could tell yourself, I didn't want to buy this car in the first place. I didn't want to go on this road trip. And lay in the backseat of the car, saying, See, and this is why I didn't want to go on this road. Trip. Who manufactured this car? Right? Or you could say, You know what? Let's fight about this shit later. Let's get me and my family out of the car. Right? Let's get ourselves to safety. This is no joke in emergency. It was after January 6th. That's when I started talking with Norman and people for the American way more um, intently. He tried it. He tried it. It's the closest our government has come to toppling in 150 years. He didn't talk about it. He didn't joke about it. He didn't think about it, he tried it. He's going to try it again. He's not alone. There are thousands of people conspiring with him right now to try it again. And their first step is getting back in office. And if the election were held today, Donald Trump would win. And I really do believe it would be the last presidential election we had in our lifetimes. So it's an emergency, all hands on deck. However, you felt about how we got here, however, busy we are, and I know we all are. And the kid has to be picked up from daycare. Um, it really can all go away. It has happened before. Nations have lost their democracies, they've lost their government. People have been forcibly evicted from their nations. When a strongman dictator takes over and he is going to try it, he's try- he's he's in the act of trying it right now. So Um, Millennials need to not only act as if it's an emergency. I also think we have to unlearn a bit of learned helplessness, right? Because we are broke. Because the boomers, uh, again, some of my favorite people are boomers. But as a generation, the collective political choices were shit. And the consequences of those choices have made us all rightfully angry. But we're not kids anymore in a recession that it was not of our making. We are now one of the most important and potent political forces on the planet. And so we should act it. We're powerful, let's use our power. We have a bigger voice, we have a ton of people, and we are, you know, we're we're old enough to know, but we're young enough to do. And that means this election's on us, so it's time to go get it.
0: Yeah. Well, Savante, I just want to say that I am super grateful to you as a friend. I mean, I've known you for a long time. Um, we were at Cornell at the same time, actually, which is weird because I didn't know you on campus, I but I yeah, had a I baby didn't... and you were downtown tutoring people in ninth grade math. So, you know, different, different <laughs> yes. lifestyles, but both avoiding parties mostly. So, you know, there yeah. it is. Um, we up later. We ex- exactly. Yes, we, we had our moment. And I am. I'm grateful to you as a friend. I'm grateful to you as a public servant, because um, it's not easy. And um, the public health system has seen, um, I just had a public health leader on a couple weeks ago, and she said, in public health, we always say that when people are talking about us, we know something has gone wrong. (laughs) And in in public health, you don't want people talking about public health. Like if the water is clean and the diseases are under control, no one talks about public health. It's only during a crisis that you hear the names, right? Anthony Fauci is a household name for one reason and one reason alone, despite his many years of service. Um, So I am very grateful for your service and the fact that you've shown up for more than a decade in this capacity, whether or not there were buzzwords Um, And one thing that we didn't get to, um, and I'll have to point people to some links, some articles about your work, but you have a long history of enacting progressive policies with an eye towards making the world better for a wide variety of people. And I think that that is so important, that your work, your legacy shows that you're not uh, playing for a team. You're playing for the American people. And I'm about that as well. I show up every day. I want to help everyone feel better. And I want to figure out how to communicate with people from different walks of life than myself, who maybe think that we have different beliefs or different backgrounds. I wanna find those places where we meet and get along. And I know that you're about that too. So gratitude to you for that work, for that service, for showing up, and for showing up today despite the jet lag and despite all of the things on your plate. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you. And congrats on all your success and your work. Really good to see you.
0: Thank you. And next time we get together, yoga mm-hmm. a tito's martini and a massage kale salad
1: important to do it in that order too you don't want to, you don't want a yoga on a uh two martinis deep
0: yes yes yoga first martini yoga. later
1: <laughs> all right thank you
0: all right have a good one good to see you you too Thank you once again for listening to the Marion Flaxman Network podcast, a podcast dedicated to reintroducing personal narratives into public health. For more information on me, Marion, please visit my website at marionflaxman.com. For more information on my guest, Savante Myrick, and the organization he leads, People for the American Way, please visit the links in the show notes. This episode was produced by Brain Trust Productions and sponsored by Informed Solutions Consulting. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.